الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين نحمده ونستعينه إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله لا تخفى عليه خافية يعلم خائنة الأعين وما تخفي الصدور يعلم السر وأخفى وأشهد أن سيدنا وحبيبنا ومولانا محمدا صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبده ورسوله وما أرسلناك إلا رحمة للعالمين وما أرسلناك إلا بشيرا ونذيرا للناس كافة من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعصي الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له رفعت الأقلام وجفت الصحف أما بعد Dear committed Muslims, brothers and sisters There's a thick layer of tradition that has caused us to render what is most important least the least important and what is the least important becomes the most important this is the nature of the centuries of traditions that we carry in our minds and in our societies and we've been working on trying to dissipate this type of accumulation and this khutbah with Allah's help is a contribution towards that end we begin this khutbah by remembering the words of Allah لَا تُؤَاخِذْنَا بِمَا فَعَلَ السُّفَهَاءُ مِنَّا Don't take us to task for what the fools among us have done. And we do have fools among us, but we seldomly have individuals who are strong enough to identify who these foolish types are we in previous khutbas tried to as much as is humanly possible try to raise the red flags concerning those who contributed 
in foolish ways to the burden of misguided traditions that we are shackled with. What type of practices do we have that violate our togetherness, our unity? You can see we are out here in the street because there is a heavy dose of historical traditions that justifies for the people who have power and wealth to divide the Muslims as is the case here. There's more serious divisions in many other places, but this is a demonstration of one of them. In Salat al-Jumu'ah, you will see or you will observe in some masajid that when a person enters the masjid, they will pray two rak'at. And there are other Muslims who will not do that. We don't have the healthy psychology to say to ourselves that whether a Muslim prays two rakahs or whether he does not pray two rakahs, he is doing it as a matter of his heartfelt conviction. And that should be honored, whichever way it is. Those who do pray the two rakat, they say that the Prophet of Allah, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him and his, says, Bayna kulli adhanayn salat, between two, the, between every two adhans, in this case, the adhan and the iqama, you have to pray two rakahs. Okay, alhamdulillah. Whoever prays two rakahs, they pray two rakahs. The others who disagree with this say that the Prophet only had one adhan for Salat al-Jumu'ah. The other adhan that we have was institutionalized during the reign of the third successor to Allah's Prophet, Uthman. Alhamdulillah, if that's their opinion and they do that from the bottom of their heart, may Allah accept from them. Why should we have any type of differences because of an issue like this? Then we have those who equate, they say, Salat al-Jumu'ah is a substitute for Salat al-Dhuhr. And this type, these are all fiqhi opinions. There's nothing in the Qur'an itself or in the hard established facts of the Prophet's bayan and balagh that tell us this fiqhi information. And we're not trying to knock down any fiqhi. We are not trying to lessen the importance of a person's attachment to his faqih they say that salat al-jumu'ah is two rakahs all of us agree to that but they say the other two rakahs that substitute for 
the four fard rak'at of Salat al-Dhuhr is completing what is supposed to be Salat al-Dhuhr. But there are certain things about uh, Salat al-Jumu'ah that do not apply to Salat al-Dhuhr. First of all, Salat al-Jumu'ah is on Friday only. Salat al-Dhuhr is on every day. Salat al-Dhuhr, you can pray it qadaan. You can make up for it if you miss it. Salat al-Jumu'ah, you cannot. So, whichever way a Muslim convinces his himself, his heart is at ease with it, let us be a brother to that Muslim. Even though our opinion or our heart does not settle on the same thing. Because our hearts have to be together. Indeed, committed Muslims are brethren. So, should we violate an ayah because of our hard opinions about the judgments of the fuqaha? Is that the way it's supposed to be? Then we have in the issue of, remember, all of this is we're trying to sweep away the traditions that have made us, that have made one Muslim of a particular madhab feel that he is superior to another Muslim because of that other Muslim's madhab. This is the issue that we are trying to deal with. When the Prophet of Allah, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, when he used to travel, he used to pray Salat al-Dhuhr and al-Asr and al-Isha two rak'at. And that's the way many Muslims do it. There are some other Muslims, without going to the fiqhi details, who don't do it. They pray al-Dhuhr four rak'at, al-Asr four rak'at, and al-Isha four rak'at. They don't take the license of Qasr. There are other Muslims who pray the fard in al-Dhuhr, al-Asr, al-Isha, two rak'as, but then they add two other rak'as as a volunteer, a sunnah salah. All of this is a fact of our Islamic condition. If you've been around, if you've seen people, if you've experienced life, you will detect this fact of Muslim life. Now, if these are some details of our lives, why should this become an issue to put a distance among us? Where we feel like, no, no, I'm not, I don't agree with him. I don't want to be with that type of salah. Or I don't want to pray behind him or pray in the masjid with that type of imam in there, etc. There are some people in the first generation of Muslims said, if I'm going to pray the two rak'ahs extra to the fard in Salat al-Qasr, I might as well pray the two fard rak'at that I left when I made my qasr. Why am I praying two fard and two sunnah when I can pray the four fard? 
all of these are in the internal decisions that went into the judgments of the fuqaha and we live with them but we should not live with them to divide ourselves from each other as is the case then we have salat al-watr at the end of the day the last salah after we pray Aisha, after you pray in nafil after whatever you pray the last salah is al-watr and in some madhabs it's one rakah in other madhabs it's three rakahs watr means one three five seven nine the uneven numbers so whether it's one rakah or three rakahs or if you dig deeper in other maybe five or whatever but whatever the case is in the fiqh details there are some that say after two rakahs if you're praying three rakahs because most of them do it this way if you're praying three rakahs after the second rakah you say your salam and then you stand up and you pray the final wetter rakah by itself there are others who say no you pray the three rakahs together there's no taslima after the second rakah it's like praying salat al-maghrib after the second rakah you don't give your salam and stand so this is part of our fiqhi reality why should anyone make this an issue of oh i know my my faqih knows more than your faqih or because i do it a certain way i am correct and you're not correct this notion has to disappear from our psychology it has to go how longer are we going to be killed so that we can understand these differences should not stand between us should not divide us same thing with the basmala bismillah we said this previously some imams when they begin their salah they say bismillah rahman rahim out loud you can hear it some of them say it to themselves some of them may not say it at all they'll begin saying let's say it fatiha they'll skip al basmala and they say alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin without even saying it in the this is the fact of our life now what are you going to say i'm not going to pray behind and this is in the muslim world there are masajid like this they'll know the imam doesn't say bismillahi rahman rahim as an example so that they're not going to pray behind that imam how longer how longer is our blood going to flow before we can surmount this trivia and then there is dua al-istiftah there's three formulas for dua al-istiftah one of them inni wajjahtu wajhiya lilladhi fatara as-samawati wal-ard hanifan musliman wa ma ana min al-mushrikeen inna salati wa nusuki wa mahyaya wa mamati lillahi rabbil alameen la sharika lah others doesn't matter another one of these fine fiqhi details the other dua istiftah is subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik tabaraka ismuka wa ta'ala jadduk wa la ilaha ghayruk the third very 
unknown dua al-istiftah Allahumma ba'ad bayni wa bayna khatayaya kama ba'adta bayna al-samai wal-ard You have three dua al-istiftah Now, not much issue is made about this because most of the Muslims, they say their dua al-istiftah to themselves And I'm speaking here to those who come from the Sunni tradition as opposed to the Shia tradition some in the Shia tradition will say Dua al-Istiftah before Takbirat al-Ihram. All the Sunnis, they say it that I know of. They say it after Takbirat al-Ihram and before reading Surah al-Fatiha. But the Sunnis know, and if a Sunni does this nowadays, he'll blow the minds of those who are listening to him. Do they know that Umar ibn al-Khattab said Dua al-Istiftah out loud? They don't even read their own history, their own books of information. They don't even read Because if someone does it right now, say, what are you doing? You're not supposed to say it out loud. So there's something in the fiqh, that, a, a major component of fiqh that has been lost. You can say, provided it doesn't become a habit, you can say, what is said to yourself, you can say it out loud for the purpose of teaching those who are listening. This important element in our fiqh has been lost. It's been buried in these centuries of wayward traditions. And then you have Salat al-Janazah. What do you do in Salat al-Janazah? This is another time when some Muslims feel a little uncomfortable because someone who's leading Salat al-Janazah is not doing it the way they expect it to be done. Do you read Surah al-Fatiha jahran out loud? That's been done. Ibn Abbas did it for those of you who don't know this information. What if someone did it now in our days? You go to Salat al-Janazah and the Imam who's leading Salat al-Janazah is praying like Ibn Abbas. He reads Surah al-Fatiha out loud. Now, Ibn Abbas, was he a Sunni or was he a Shi'i? Alhamdulillah, he came before the, the very serious polarization, so no one can point to him as he's a Sunni faqih or he's a Shi'i faqih. Challenge your mind and think out of the rut that we are in. And then the Fatiha itself. Some schools of thought in Salat al-Janazah, there's no Fatiha. In others, there is. What are you doing? I'm not going to pray Salat al-Janazah because that person reads or doesn't read al-Fatiha. Or even Salat al-Janazah itself. Some fuqaha call it Dua al-Janazah, not Salat al-Janazah. Okay, fine. Fine. We don't have enough tolerance in ourselves. We don't have enough brotherhood among us to accept what our hearts and minds together lead us to then the the raising of the two hands some people raise their two hands when they say the takbirat some people don't alhamdulillah what's your problem whether a person raised their or didn't raise they say well, the Prophet, we have a hadith that says the Prophet did it. For your information, these hadiths were collected in a scattered manner. It wasn't a centralized collection of hadith 
that took place when the hadith was written. So it could have been the Prophet did it this way, once he did it that way. Is there any contradiction here? It's the contradiction is in your mind. And then what the Salat Janaza has one taslima, Assalamu alaikum at the end. You say it once or you say it twice. Even the, the regular Salah, same thing. Then the takbirat of the janazah. If you really wanted to know, there are four takbirat, there are five takbirat, and there are seven takbirat if we wanted to take a look at the range of fuqaha that we have in Salat al-Janazah. What do you think? Because some of this information is not available now. Because not the average Muslim, what I'm telling you right now, the average Muslim does not know. Because the average Muslim is ignorant of his own history or her own history. And that ignorance has been institutionalized by this accumulation of traditions that we now carry on our back. Then I don't know if any of you ever heard a mu'adhin. In the adhan there's something called a tarjiyah which something means like saying it again in the adhan when a person says ashhadu an la ilaha illallah and then he says ashhadu anna muhammadan rasulullah these are part of the adhan right there's something in the adhan called tarji'ah and that means that when I say Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, I say to myself before it, Ashhadu an, before I amplify the voice, I say to myself, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. When I say Ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah, before I say it out loud on the mic, I say to myself, Ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. That's called tarjiyah. And I know this is not common knowledge among the Muslims, but we have to go into this territory to dig up these issues that the uh, Umawi types want us to centralize and judge the world because of these types of issues. Now, even when you come to this issue of tarjiyah, there's some of them say, you say it in a loud voice. And some of them say, no, you say it to yourself the second time. Because we say, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah twice. Those who, ta- who, who accept tarjiyah as part of the then say it four times. They say, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah four times. And they say, Ashadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah four times. But there's a subtle difference here in, in, in that do you say the four times in a loud voice, in a voice that can be heard? Or do you say it half of the times only to yourself and then there's another subtlety to all of this when you say it to yourself do you say it before you amplify it or after you amplify it see these are issues that troublemakers come up with to say no I don't think you know he's doing this right 
because my fiqh or my hadiths or my marja or my scholar or my faqih, they don't say it that way. So the other Muslim has to be saying it wrong. No! Don't go to that extent. Don't say the other Muslim is saying it or doing it wrong. Because that's going to violate the unity in the Qur'an that we are supposed to honor. Same thing with in the sal- in the salah, qad qamat salat say it once or you say it twice in the iqama. All of these should be considered like a tashahhud. When we say our tashahhud, if we could say it out loud, you'll understand almost every one of us is saying it in a different way. The tashahhud. The dua. We don't all say the same dua. We say different du'as. So, and other things. Why can we make this acceptable? And we cannot extend this acceptability to these other issues that I just mentioned. This is called al-khilaf al-mubah. This is legitimate and it is permissible difference of opinion. And let's not get carried away like those who have divided us because of these issues. رَبَّنَا لَا تُؤَاخِذْنَا بِمَا فَعَلَ السُّفَهَاءُ مِنَّا In another, إِنْ هِيَ إِلَّا فِتْنَتُكَ أَقُولُ قَوْلِ هَذَا وَأَسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهَ لِي وَلَكُمْ وَدْعُوهُ سُبْحَانَهُ وَأَنْتُمْ عَلَى يَقِينٍ بِالْإِجَابَةِ وَتُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَوَابٌ رَحِيمٌ الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear committed Muslims wherever you may be instead of our khutbas being elevated with a consciousness of the real issues of our day that impact our lives Because as you may have noticed in the previous khutbah, we were trying to sweep away some of the negatives that have been lodged into our psychology and into our history. We're trying to sweep those away. But here, if there were khutbahs, if there was a taqwa of Allah, this day, Yawm al-Jumu'ah, is the day of taqwa. If we had this taqwa, in our minds and in our conscience this is the way we should be looking at things you see all the people now all the people meaning the mainstream media and everyone who's tuned into the mainstream media in one fashion or the other are speaking about a crime now doesn't a crime fall within the purview of morality that doesn't our moral character demand of us 
to expose a crime and the criminals? So why can't we do that? If there are criminals roaming the earth and committing the most heinous and the most significant of crimes, why can't, out of our moral character, why can't we look at the facts and then expose them in the light of what the information, the valuable information that we are entrusted with by Allah and His Prophet. Why? Why aren't Muslims capable of speaking in their masajid, from their manabir? Why can't they speak about this crime that took place about 10 days ago? Exactly 10 days ago. The 2nd of October, right now the 12th of October. This Ibn Salman, after the Halabalu, after the extensive coverage by the media, he contacted, of all people, he contacted Kushner, the son-in-law, the Zionist son-in-law of the imperialist president. And he tells him there was no crime committed. And the embedded message is that you can pass the word along to your father-in-law, to the national security, to government officials, that we are not to be implicated in any crime. We have nothing to do with the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi, that journalist went into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and from there on no one has provided concrete proof of what exactly happened to him besides the fact that he's no longer available. No one knows where he is. The Turkish ambassador news reports say that the Turkish ambassador in Beirut said that Ibn Salman contacted Erdogan, the president of Turkey, and told him, in his own words, of course I'm not quoting word by word, but told him that the CIA has set us up for to do all of this. I don't think he used the word entrapment, but I think that's what he meant. And Ibn Salman tells Erdogan, we are willing to invest $5 billion in your economy if you can kill this issue. They killed a journalist, now they want to kill the issue. They are killers, physically and otherwise. Have you ever heard of diplomatic dawa'ish? That's what you have right now. You had the Daishis who were bloodthirsty and killing innocent people on a large scale. Now you have politicians and diplomats who are Daishis, Dawaish. And I think most of you know the details, some of the details, 
uh, a crew of 15 flew in on private jets, flew into Istanbul, disembarked, went to the Saudi consulate. Among those 15 was the major pathologist in that evil kingdom of the Saudi family. Why did they, they bring along a pathologist? Then, there are another news items that say what, what, what those 15 were made up of three groups. The first group was an interrogation group. The second group was a torture group. And the third group was a media group. According to some reports, only Allah knows, the details have not been disclosed. But when this journalist entered that consulate, there was communication between him and Ibn Salman and the immediate circle. And, of course, nasty words were exchanged. And the higher orders came down to the crews that were there, complete your mission. So, one report says he was given, he was overdosed on some type of sedative. They wanted to knock him out, knock him unconscious. But they gave him too much, and they realized now they have a dead body. He's dead. So what do you do with a dead body? They brought a saw with them, so they began to saw his body and put it in boxes. We're speaking about diplomatic dawa'ish. That's what we have. This is a crime. And so what do they do? We don't know. Some reports say they buried some of these boxes in the yard of that consulate. Others said they put them on, into vans and they took the vans to their uh, private planes. And diplomats, some of them have diplomatic status, so their belongings are not scrutinized, they're not inspected. So they got away with a crime. Now, What's going through the mind of the decision makers in Turkey? Here's what we have. We have a thousand companies between Saudi Arabia and Turkey that are doing business with each other. That's a lot of money. The volume of trade in the last year was eight billion dollars or so and increasing it's been increasing in the past two years turkey gets more than two hundred and fifty thousand saudi tourists who come there and, and they bring of course money and they have lavish spending and all this so this is an economic consideration so what are we going to have in the final analysis how is the way out of this crime we don't know Obviously, the, the person in the White House, the chief executive here in Washington, D.C., 
Yesterday, he says, there's $110 billion of military and other contracts with that kingdom. And he's very reluctant to take away the jobs. This is the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower cautioned. See, right now, we are paying the price when profit trumps principle. It's what we have. They're looking at money. They're not looking at an innocent human being. What does it say for the rest of us? What does it say for journalists? What does it say for people of conscience? What does it say for opponents of a certain regime? If they get away with this murder, then they open the floodgates for many other murders to follow. And by the way, the Saudi interrogation process is a nasty one. Just to give you an example of what takes place, they bring in the, the person who's detained into a uh, chamber, an interrogation chamber, and there's a, a rough guy there, and he begins to ask questions. And if he doesn't like your answer, he'll throw whatever he has at you. If he has a book on his desk, that's the beginning of it. In one of those cases, I'll relate to you, this is the Saudi Arabia that many people think is the custodium of the two haramayn and is the representative of Islam and all of this. In one occasion, they told one of these shuyukh to defecate in his own chamber or in his own cell to defecate, meaning to release himself and to take the feces of his own self and rub it on his beard. This is what goes on. This is real. This is communicated by another person who was behind bars, was interrogated himself, even though he was a professor in one of their universities, and now he's an opposition figure. So what do you say? And then today we have the person who is giving the khutbah in Mecca, who stands up and says something to the effect that whenever the fitna appears, you remain silent. In other words, you shut up. Whenever a fitna begins to appear, you shut up. You don't listen to anyone except those who have... And he wants to, you know, promote his rulers and his the people who pay his check. He says, you listen to them. And then he, he ends his khutbah in Mecca by making dua his words these are the people who are negotiating behind the scenes to basically legitimize the Zionist colonization of Palestine all of this is happening within the larger scheme of saying to the Zionists of the world, Palestine is yours, Al-Quds is yours, and if you want more, you can take more. This is what is happening. What's the media right now? Who's, who's paying attention to the Israelis when they are opening fire on Palestinians in Gaza, 
in the West Bank, in Al-Quds, in the vicinity of Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. Who's paying attention to that? A person like this, of course, you know, he, he he's a victim of a crime. But the larger crime is killing populations, not persons, populations. Aren't they killing the population in Yemen? Aren't they killing the population in Palestine? Aren't they killing the populations in Syria and Iraq? And they want to go on to kill other populations. Where, where's everyone? Where's human rights organizations and institutions and establishments around the world? They want to continue to do business with criminals. They want to get their last riyal. They're going to shake them down. This Ibn Salman felt so... The Saudi counselor in Istanbul, within his precincts, this crime took place. He's been in isolation for a few days in his own home. He doesn't want to speak to anyone. He doesn't want to see anyone. And then Ibn Salman contacts Al-Walid Ibn Talal and Turki Al-Faisal. These were the two closest people to him. Very influential. And Turki Al-Faisal, who was the ambassador here after Bandar, head of Saudi intelligence for many years, said, I don't want anything to do with this. I considered him like my son. This is how gripped with fear that that family is right now so that their masters can get more out of a trillion dollars here. They have a trillion dollars in this economy. They can say goodbye to their trillion dollars. And they can think about auctioning off Aramco for their survival. The Prophet of Allah says the decision-making is decision-making position is not given to a person who greeds it. And these are greeting power and wealth. They should not be in those positions. But who wants to put the Prophet's saying in the context of our time and in the dimensions of reality? Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna tiba'ah. وأرنا الباطل باطلا وارزقنا اجتنابه ولا تجعله ملتبسا علينا واجعلنا للمتقين إماما ربنا إننا سمعنا مناديا ينادي للإيمان أن آمنوا بربكم فآمنا ربنا فاغفر لنا ذنوبنا وكفر عنا سيئاتنا وتوفنا مع الأبرار ربنا وآتنا ما وعدتنا على رسلك ولا تخزنا يوم القيامة إنك لا تخلف الميعاد ربنا صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وآله وعلى إبراهيم وآله بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر 
ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاة حي على الفلاح قد قامت الصلاة قد قامت الصلاة الله أكبر